welcome to the Theater Queens podcast. I'm Ricky. I'm Ellie. And I'm Alyssa. And tonight we are going to be doing a quick dive into the latest theater news, a deep dive into one of my personal favorite musicals, and an even deeper dive into what it means to be a pretty woman that, shocker, has a brain. Tonight we're talking about Legally Blonde, the musical. Yes! Woo! How exciting. I'm so excited, guys. I like that. That's it's cute. Good, I like that intro. It's a musical. I feel like I feel like the last two, Alyssa was very not not I'm not like throwing shade or anything. But she low key. But Alyssa hated was very <laughs> low key hated. Oh <laughs> um, least... no, I high key hated cats. At least <laughs> cats. So we finally found a musical that Alyssa tolerates. Tolerates. I love it. Okay, I yeah. have so many thoughts on this. So uh, now that we've established how much I love Legally Blonde, let's talk about the news real quick, Ricky. Okay, we, for like our quick dive into the news, there's a lot of news happening this week from all different ends of the world. Yeah. Uh, let's start with a little bit of West End, just because that's a little fun this week. that's what's opening. That's, what, that's what's opening. Miss Alyssa Edwards, who, if you're as obsessed with Drag Race as I am, she announced a new drag spectacular to be happening in the West End entitled Alyssa memoirs of a queen and I'm like such such an Alyssaism and sounds awesome to be honest uh and I think it might be also be like coming to Netflix too I don't know what's happening I feel like a lot of these different performances are also being filmed for Netflix and I just love that happening but also that's not even the only drag show that's coming to the West End because Death Drop which announced that it's supposed to be opening in 2020 I don't know if it ever really officially opened but eventually when the West End does reopen it's going to be getting Miss Latrice Royale and Willem from again Drag Race fame and that's going to be at the Garrett Theater and that's going to be opening May 19th with all the different COVID precautions of reduced capacity, social distancing, hand sanitizing stations, mask requirements, temperature checks, and all the wonderful things. Classic, classic. Classic, classic. And that's a little bit of some fun things. Um, Ellie, you also have some stuff? I had uh, one thing, apparently, unbeknownst to a lot of... Whether, we, whether we'd like it or not. I would love it. Stop it. <laughs> Yeah, no, I want this to, like, I want this to come to America. But it, it also makes sense that it's in, that it's on the West End. A Doctor Who, I think it's a play. It's an immu- it's an immersive show, is what they say. They just announced their full cast. There are, it looks like, a company of 86 people. It is a large production. That's a giant company. That is really big. I'm just imagining having to, like, costume each individual actor. With a company of 86, making each perform impossible. That's it's crazy. It's crazy. Especially, you know, with COVID and everything. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Because, I mean, like, now they're doing rehearsals for different shows, but with COVID precautions. But I'm like, how much can you possibly social distance, like, 80 people? That's crazy. The synopsis is, it's 1940, in the height of the Blitz. A weapon of unknown origin destroys a small corner of Mayfair. And simultaneously opens a rift in time and space. For decades, UNIT, Unified Intelligence Task Force, has fought to protect the people of Earth from the dangers it poses. But they have been beaten back as the fracture multiplies out of control. Earth as we know it is at stake. Now it's time for you to step up and be the hero. Traveling to impossible places, confronting menacing monsters and ancient aliens along the way. The journey across space and time to save our race and our beautiful planet. So the news that came out 
in the past couple of weeks is that there's going to be a cameo from John Barrowman as Captain Jack. Ooh. Yeah! David Bradley as William Hartnell as the first Doctor. Yes! So he's he they're they're going to be in pre-recorded cameos in the show in, in in some way, telling them probably save the world. It's all up to you. So that is that is the little bit of Doctor Who time fracture news that I had that has come out the past week. Another thing, cool thing that came out is Disney just announced that they're going to be doing a live action adaptation of Twenty Fifth Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, which I mean honestly. My first reaction is kind of nervous about it. See, a lot of people are nervous because it's Disney, but Disney owns a lot of movies out that aren't for children. They're just, they, right. are, they are produced by Disney. So it, I, I don't know. It could be, it could be, they are starting to expand with more adult things, especially we see in the MCU. We're, we're getting PG-13 and Deadpool 3 is going to be R. Like hard R, and I'm very excited. <laughs> so it it could be it, telling the story as a whole, and not the high school version. Uh, like Spelling Bee, even I believe the creators see Spelling Bee as very much an adult show. And my right. first, when I heard that, I was like, oh shit, they're gonna cut out Chip's erection song because <laughs> yeah, I don't think my unfortunate erection is really that kid friendly. But I feel like that's just very telling of the show about, like, this is not a kid's show. I'm a little nervous, but I'm, I am optimistic. Hopefully, if they hire the right director, if they hire the right yes. actors, yes. then it should be okay. And regardless, it's nice to see musicals that aren't necessarily as famous and huge getting special treatment. And basically people who would not normally know of the show being introduced to this show. Yes. My, my whole question is, like... There's a lot of audience participation in that show. Yeah, that's very true. And that's going to be I interesting. See how, how they do that? They incorporate that because, like, the randomness of the audience participation. I feel like a lot of the times with improv shows, they're not as improv as we think that they are, or let they're presented to the audience in a certain way, but are very much already pre-planned, and that the actors already know how to guide the improv to exactly the answer that they want it to be true but then there are certain moments that cannot be planned i think in general it's just all live theater there is a certain magic and a certain extra element to having it be live in front of you that anything can happen that we're not going to exactly get from a movie Mm -hmm. right i'm excited I'm, i'm excited and nervous excited and scared uh, should we get into the D-bomb show, which is the whole Scott Rudin situation stuff going on? There's there's a lot of different things to talk about. Just to quickly sum it up, there are all these allegations coming out about him, which I feel like everyone's kind of known about, but like many other Hollywood people. It's like the Hollywood Weinstein thing, poorly kept secret. Poorly kept secret of just these very abusive Hollywood and Broadway producers finally getting called out on their shitty abusive behavior and all of the outcome of that and with Scott Rudin's case one of the big things that happened is Karen Olivo left her Tony Award nominated production of Moulin Rouge in protest that something 
change in the theater community about this amongst many other issues going on in the theater community. Theater community is shady, yo. Can I say, Robert Roth recently got called out in relation to this. Someone saw his computer over his shoulder on a flight, and he was writing an email to Scott saying, you deserve an honorary Tony Award for somehow getting that horrible woman, Karen Olivo, to quit acting. It's a miracle. God bless you, Scott, for your service to the American theater. I'm getting mad now. People are stupid. Rob Roth. So then with Rudin's production of Music Man on the rise, which already that production itself had all this different drama about kicking Beetlejuice out of their theater, which a thousand percent was Scott Rudin's doing very intentionally. A fucking rude. Beetlejuice was a treasure. But the thing is with the Beetlejuice thing, everyone is also kind of making excuses about like, good as Beetlejuice was, how much of a moneymaker Music Man's gonna be. Who wants to see the Music Man again? If you even look at the marquee, Sutton Foster and Hugh Jackman are the biggest thing there because they know that is what's going to be selling tickets, which is why now when all these things are coming out of us, Scott Rudin, when they're coming to Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster for comments, I mean, as I kind of feel bad for Sutton Foster to a certain extent, because does she now, her and Hugh Jackman now need to quit the production? What does that mean for them as actors? Because they don't want any backlash from any of these higher-ups in the Broadway community. Karen Olivo's been blacklisted for quitting. Sutton Foster doesn't want that to happen to her over this. So Sutton Foster's response was, I apologize if it seems like I wasn't actively trumpeting my feelings, and I really need to step away. I never had to deal with anything like this before, and I think 46 years on this earth deserves that. I'm mature enough to be able to take the time and think people should allow it. I really am excited to be returning to Broadway. May we continue to change, that's all I'm going to say. I just feel, really, it's, it's an inevitable, unfortunate situation, but the only positive outcome is the one that is happening. And I know Hugh feels the exact same way. Oh, and, and Hugh Jackman's quote from this, in all caps, by the way, is, I want to say how much I respect and applaud the people that have spoken up against uh, about their experience working with Scott Rudin. It takes an enormous amount of courage and strength to stand up and state your truth. This has started a conversation that is long overdue, not just on Broadway and the entertainment industry, but all across all workforce. The most important voice we needed to hear from was Scott Rudin. He has now spoken up and stepped away from the music man. I hope and pray this may be a journey of healing for all of the victims and the community. We are currently rebuilding the Music Man team and are aspiring to create an environment that is not only safe, but ensures that everyone is seen, heard, and valued. This is something that is and has always been very important to me. Hugh Jackman. A lot of people in the comments are reprimanding Hugh for saying that the most important voice is Rudin's, because that, that is essentially saying that the most important person is the abuser. Oh, I see that. I, I understand where they're coming from, but at the same time, I think they're missing the other points that he made, which was, this is a conversation that needs to occur and happen and is kind of important. I mean, I like his comment better than Sutton's, honestly. I agree as well. Sutton's felt incredibly defensive. I'm sorry, my top priority isn't talking to you guys about how I feel about the fact that the producer of the Broadway show that I'm currently working on is an abusive asshole. Yeah, which it very much feels like this is something that everyone knew. So it's not like a new thing that we're like talking about. And to some extent, I can't blame famous actresses in particular 
for not speaking up about it sooner. As many people have said about it is how brave it is for people to come forward saying what he did because he had such power in the industry that you're literally risking your entire career over it. Right. And even coming, even saying positive things about him, I can understand it might be a term of their contract. It might be him flexing his power, but the extent to which I think it happens is a bit troublesome. And I think it sets an unfortunate precedent in which people are comfortable with abuse as long as it's not directed at them and it's not hurting their fame. Yeah. I also want to point out, I've always felt very, very uncomfortable whenever anyone said the phrase, speak your truth, like Hugh Jackman did. But it's the problem that I noticed in Hugh Jackman's thing, which is speaking your truth kind of implies well that's your opinion it's your truth not not the fact it's It's not the truth it's not actually what's happening it's just what you think is happening and your experience and i'm not invalidating your experience i'm telling you that it's not the global experience so uh kudos for speaking your truth i've always hated that statement but it's always generally speaking it's meant pretty innocuously so i can't take that much away from him scott rudin himself his little apology was that I'm going to step, quote, step back from all of his Broadway productions. And then he later came out with saying that he's also stepping back from all of his TV and movie productions. But my issue with that is saying you're going to step back doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that you're like, he's not going to be making money because he is going to be making right. money. It's not that he's not going to be a part of them because he is. Saying, but, so he said, oh, I'm going to be stepping back because that is the best thing he can say to not actually do anything and to just continue what he's doing, but make him look good. Which it bothers me because people like, see, and a lot of the Broadway community, seeing Scott Rudin saying he's going to step down, I'd be like, problem solved. Broadway industry is perfectly fixed now because he said he's going to step back. And I'm like, no. And then Ken Davenport, Ken Davenport also being uh, another Broadway producer, posted something like, a big step back is a big step forward. And I'm like, okay, come on, Ken no, Davenport. It's not. You, as a Broadway producer, cannot be that dumb. He's not. You can see right through this. It's a very, I think it was a very calculated move. And it's one that he probably made in order to hide whatever. He's trying to save his ass just as much as everyone else. I think the main point to take out of this is that the theater system and the systems that have been set in place by the people who have created it needs a lot of reform before everyone can truly feel comfortable and welcome there. And calling out Scott Rudin might have been one of the first steps to take, but we're nowhere near done. This is just the beginning. And I know I know that this was a really heavy topic. And so let's continue on a bit of a lighter note. So let's get into our deep dive. Let's talk about Legally Blonde. Legally Blonde. It's just fantastic. And it's just a lot of fun. I think this musical at the end of the day is just a, it's a very fun musical. So for a quick background, for those of you who don't know, in 2001, the movie Legally Blonde starring Reese Witherspoon was released. And around the same time, also in 2001, the book that it was based off of was also released. The, mu- the musical came out in 2007, starring Laura Bell Bundy and Christian Borel, amongst many others. I wasn't aware that there was a book before the movie. Most people aren't. I read the book coming into this. One huge thing that is in the book that is not in the movie nor is it in the musical Emmett doesn't exist yeah really 
all she she gets all of her development on her own and you know what i like that better she don't need no man i like that better so much better it highlights what i think is an endemic problem in hollywood which is the shoehorned love interest especially when you consider the movie emmett and l have no relationship which is one of the reasons why i like the musical better because they develop that a whole lot more So starting from the beginning of the musical, the first song, the opening number, Oh My God, You Guys. Such a bop. So good. And such a legendary opening number that does everything an opening number needs to. It gets you fully invested. I want to watch this right now. It's so fun. And I also want to give a quick props to the costuming department because there are two quick changes in there. One in which a person is going down a pole and one in which Elle changes from a basic dress into her quote-unquote engagement outfit it's done so well i in general just love greg barnes and all the different shows he's been a costume designer for greg barnes did a fantastic job with this and he deserves all the accolades for it because the quick changes that he does and is known for doing always come across really really well agreed Okay, so the next song we get into is the song Sirius, in which Elle thinks Warner's going to propose, and Warner definitely does not. He definitely does not. True. So what I specifically want to hit on in terms of Sirius is the way that Elle acts, and I think what is an intentional acting choice by Laura Bell Bundy in making herself small when Warner's around, because she overacts almost everything else. But, but it's an intentional acting choice that I think is really important, because Elle is just a dramatic person in and of herself. But like, I feel like with this level of comedy, I feel like a lot of the very exaggerated choices don't feel as exaggerated because they're kind of in the suspension of disbelief of that world. Right, definitely. Elle has already established that she's brilliant in her chosen area when she's looking for the engagement outfit and the saleswoman tries to bring her something that is clearly not up to standard. She knows not only that it's not up to standard, but what about it is not up to standard and she remembers it she has this incredible mind for detail but we're kind of because it's about fashion we're encouraged to think that she's stupid the second she's around warner and he's finished singing his first verse and the chorus and she's about to like oh this is the scene where i sing my section of the song and then he's like oh i wasn't done and she's like oh sorry okay and she immediately withdraws into in on herself I feel like that's also very telling of who Warner is as a character that as he's yeah. talking to her and she wants to pipe in. He's like, no, 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 honey, let me finish. Right. The next thing I wanted to pull out from there is that they specifically compare Elle to Marilyn Monroe and they continue to do it with Warner specifically comparing her to Marilyn Monroe. And it's, yeah. such, a, it's, it's, a, it's such a deep comparison. And I think it's deeper than people assume because Marilyn is known for being the sexy bombshell. She's known for being an icon of what it means to be an attractive woman. And she is the stereotype of the dumb blonde. But she was so much smarter than people gave her credit for. She was brilliant and she intentionally put on that aura of dumb blonde, stupid and sexy in order to appeal to the masses and to get jobs in movies, which is exactly what Elle does. It's a very poetic comparison to Marilyn and I love it. Yes, I definitely agree with that. The last thing I want to point out about this song is he has a line where he says, I thought that you would understand. And it's, it's so endemic. It's so it's so significant. Because it shows how much he honestly doesn't even think about how she would react to this. 
he just assumes that, of course, she's thinking the same things he's thinking and that she doesn't have feelings herself. Mm-hmm. And we saw that she immediately silences herself whenever he has something to say. And, and she she behaves exactly the way that she thinks he expects her to be behaving. He literally cannot understand that she would ever have a different opinion. Which also, to go back a little bit to, oh my God, where they're saying about what a job of a wife would be, which is make him a happy home, waste not his hard-earned wage, and so he does not roam, try not to look your age. Like, that's so very much the world that they live in, of that you have to please the man. You you aren't entitled to feelings because all you all you are worth is what you are worth to the man. Right. So she intentionally sets that forth. Like they they we can see that that's drilled into her. And so his perception of their entire relationship is, oh, it's whatever I want, she wants. So he doesn't think this will break her heart. He thinks, well, this is what I want, so it must be what she wants, and everything will be absolutely fine. Um, so right after Sirius, we get what you want when Elle kind of figures out that, oh, I should apply to law school in order to get Warner back. Yeah, smartest move in the world. <laughs> I I happen to really love the spectacle of the song. I think it's just done very, very well. But I also feel like this is a problem that I have with the plot consistently, that if they had framed it from the beginning as a revenge plot instead of for love, I think it would have kind of captured everything more. Because it's one thing to, for, him, for her to come in saying, oh, if I prove to Warner that I'm what he wants, then he'll have to love me. I don't love that. But if she came into it saying, you think I'm not serious? Ha! I'm going to beat you at your own game and then not take you back when you want me back. But that's not what she wanted. I know that's not what she wanted, but it would have made me happier. But this isn't a show that was produced for me, so... But that's not what it was. I know, I know. My big issue with it is that Legally Blonde, as a story, is always framed as very, very feminist and forward-thinking and everything like that. Which is true in some elements, especially considering it was released in 2001. But there are elements where they could have improved, and this, I think, is one one of them. I don't think she should have started knowing, like, I'm going to do this and be better than you, hashtag revenge. I think she needed to, like, start off being like, I will do this to try to win you back and then find it in herself that, you know, I don't need you and I could do this myself. So basically how it went. Yeah, I think that shows a lot more growth in the character rather than, oh, she just knows from the top of the show she's going to do this to get you back. I feel like that doesn't... Okay, that's fair. This show has a slight problem of introducing a person in order for Elle to have change. Yeah. And I think that is a large problem. For what you want, she has the girl who's teaching her how to study for the, for the exam. One of the other Delta New girls. One of the other sorority girls. Throughout the rest of the show, she has Emmett. Like, there's always someone pushing her, and I think that is a problem to an extent. I mean, yeah, I see. I definitely see what you mean. But I think it also, like, everyone needs some support to some extent. I feel like the movie and the show, she doesn't have any drive. She doesn't have any push to do anything besides for a a separate entity. In the book, she has a lot more drive and a lot more 
want to be better than what she was. I feel like with the show that it's not that she doesn't have the drive, it's that she builds up to having the drive. That she doesn't have the drive to begin with, but she builds to it. So her decision to go to law school in the first place, it's not like she doesn't have any agency of her own. Yeah. It's a little irritating that her confidence in in pushing forward comes from other people. But it's something that I like a lot about the show, actually, is that even those characters that are introduced as methods to push her plot forward, other than ensemble members, tend to have their own characters, their own story arcs, and their own sort of ways of coming around to. It's not just that they're introduced to make her life better. She makes their life better, too. So there's a little bit more balance, and I like that. Okay, I hear that. I hear that. It's interesting. The the scene with her parents was very... The way that her parents dismiss her in that scene, like, it kind of bothers me. He is, like, giving her all of this advice and all of this stuff. And what is the mother doing? She's just drinking. How about a nice Birkin bag? But I'm saying it, it's it's that idea of the white, the husband is always right treat the husband as yeah definitely there's there's this element i think also to the wife of of she has nothing quote unquote serious spend your money on a birkin bag l don't spend your money on college tuition but i feel like the intentions of that like honestly i feel like they were supportive of l i mean she's coming to them with something that is very different from what she's been telling them that she's been wanting to do with her life all of her life that suddenly she makes a very hard right turn. It's not only something that is very different from what she's been wanting to do. It's also something that's very difficult to do. So her coming to them with this, yeah, they would be like, are you sure you want to do that? Are you sure you just don't want like a Birkin bag? Because I mean, if, if they right away were like, yeah, go to Harvard, I think that would be kind of irresponsible of them. That is true. That is a really good point. Law school is for boring, ugly, serious people and you, Button, are none of those. You know, and at the end of the day, what do they say? You know? We'll pay your way if you get in. My point is, I think we could see what uh, Warner and Elle could have been with Elle's parents. And and I'm very glad that Elle is not that. Another thing that kind of annoys me a little bit, which I saw like a couple of TikToks that were also about that. I'm like, so I'm glad other people are thinking about this too. How in the movie, she gets a 179 on her LSATs. But in the show, she gets a 175. Yeah. And who's up in here docking points from L? <laughs> <laughs> the line legitimately could have been 179. It would have gone with the rhyme scheme. I need I need to go stalk down Lawrence O'Keefe and be like, <laughs> excuse me, what happened to those points? I think in reality, she had a 4.0 GPA. Even though it was in fashion merchandising, it was still a 4.0 GPA, meaning she had the drive. Fashion merchandising is a good thing because I think a lot of people kind of assume that in order to go to law school, you need a pre-law sort of degree, such as politics, political science, or history or something like that. And according to actual lawyers who went to law school, what law schools look for a lot and what most graduate schools look for, they want a diverse population and they want people coming in from various different backgrounds. And so a fashion merchandising major with a 4.0 GPA and a 175 or 179, whatever it is, on the LSAT would have been a very, very strong candidate, especially with a recommendation letter from Oprah. Oprah. 
And the sorority, too. Come on! They put the fact that the Harvard team doesn't want her there as sort of like a roadblock for love to overcome. With how hard she works and with her grade on the LSATs, if she had written a normal admissions letter. But she didn't. And not burst into the Harvard offices singing and dancing with an entire legion of of cheerleaders behind her. But she did. She would have gotten in. She didn't do that. Because that's not L. But they were going to deny her or that one stuffy guy was going to deny her purely based on her looks which actually kind of does fit with the theme of the show well yeah because straight up she didn't do the admissions essay he said that as like a final nail in the coffin not as a oh she looks like a really good candidate but she didn't send in an admissions essay so i guess we can't but i feel like it's very much showing the theme of the show of judging a book by its cover like he took one look at her and saw oh she's some ditzy blonde who's not gonna fit in here so he didn't even want to look at anything she had to say and at the end of the day you know they freaking accepted her so Right. The Harvard variations. So the one thing the one thing I wanted to note about the Harvard variations is they really, really kind of go ham on the whole women have to try and prove themselves a lot more than anyone else. Because when they have the guys speaking, they're kind of a little blase about it. And the first guy shows that he's very smart, but he just does not care. Also, can we acknowledge the racism in this show for a second? The prince literally is not there for any reason he's just hiding from a coup d'etat well no he did wait hold on it's in my country my word was law but then i had to leave because of stupid coup d'etat mm-hmm. the the other really racist part about it is that they had literally one person who was brown in their ensemble and they had him play a couple of different ethnicities and it's really weird and like anytime they needed a person of color they just had the one brown guy in the ensemble play them Enid from the beginning, she she goes way over the top to prove herself. She starts listing all of her qualifications. She cannot be stopped. Every time someone's like, oh, that's really nice. She's like, no, but then I did this. And then someone else tries to say something. She's like, no, but then I did this. And it's, you know that she does that part of it might just be that she's a very like insistent over the top kind of person but I feel like she's also someone who kind of gets used to being cut off and she knows that if she does not continue to talk, no one's going to listen. So she has to continue to talk in order to make her point. She's had so many other conversations probably where people just did not take her seriously as a smart person more sp- because she's a woman, but also because she's gay. So yeah, that's what I wanted to say on Harvard Variations. Uh, the next song that we have is... So are we ready to get into the villain? The villain. Woo! I love how I love how in the notes is like, Ellie, caption, oh look, it's a villain song. It, it's the second it started... The, the way that he was moving, the way that he, it's so slow and methodic and like- The rest are chum. And he exactly. just immediately went, just oh, like, look, like, it's a villain I'm like, song. I'm like, I'm like, just splash a little green on there. You'll be a Disney villain. Perfect. <laughs> he is secretly Ursula this whole time. <laughs> but, that, but that's the thing. It was a very Ursula-like song. Something along those lines. Like, it's a very like- I'm right, you're wrong. Like in in our other episodes, we talk about who is the villain and who is the who is the protagonist, who is the antagonist. This is the first one where we kind of have it written out. Yeah, immediately you are told this guy's a villain. He seems like the kind of guy who would get mad at you for calling him a boomer and then make fun of you for being upset at something he said. Like he yes. specifically he he calls out Enid. He says to her like. 
oh, you lesbians. And then she gets mad and he's like, oh, it seems my comment has offended. He's not a nice person. I also wanted to point out just a tiny little acting moment, Emmett. When Callahan kicks Al out of class and then he has all of the different people. Oh my God. And he's like looking back. And he looks kind of sad as Callahan is closing the door and he's singing back up and he's like, okay, I'm the TA. I kind of have to do this. But he's like, oh, but Al, I'm sorry. He's still part of the harmonies, but he's like not happy to be part of the harmonies. (laughs) I don't want to be. It's a very cute little acting moment that does not get called attention to, but it really segues very well into him coming to console her after class. So after Blood in the Water, we we get to positive. Which again, really big fun dance break. Oh my God, it's so good though. The choreography is fantastic for the show and Jerry Mitchell is just amazing. One of my favorite things about this song is there's such an element of just throughout the entire show that girls have to stick together. Yeah. And it's very much highlighted I think especially in positive where she's she's getting all this advice from her hallucinations. Greek chorus. I love that goddamn pun. I it didn't click it with me the first time I watched it. And the second time I was like, oh my god, I cannot believe I didn't pick that up. The fact that she then decides to dye her blonde hair brunette, I feel like it's very much a callback into something that happens a lot in real life. I think you see a lot of natural blondes dyeing their hair darker in order to be taken more seriously. Yeah. So the fact that she then decides that she has to dye her hair, up until then, her blonde hair has kind of always been a point of strength for her. Her identifier. It's her identifier. It's something that everyone looks at her and appreciates her for. And it's something that she, it's something that kind of goes hand in hand with her whole personality. So her dyeing her hair is kind of the sign that like, okay, I'm doing away with this personality that I had. The last thing I want to say on this is the leitmotif. Yes, definitely the like, love, da 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 Like that's the same repeating motifs uh, that you could see how that, theme of love evolves throughout the show it was so good it's so good it's so well done okay now we can talk about arguably one of the greatest so underrated songs in this whole musical uh and that is ireland so ellie do we know your favorite uh <laughs> spoilers no um uh, i will reveal at the end ireland is so good yeah it starts off as so silly and then gets so serious and real and like pulls at my heartstrings in ways that I did not think a song about a ditzy girl singing about Ireland would be. Because I feel like with this song, it starts off as her just being kind of a kooky hairstylist. Celtic moods. But then it gets into like, oh wait, Paulette actually has been through some stuff. She has feelings? She has character growth? What? Yeah. I felt like my heart be like, oh my God. When she tells Elle you're able to go see those places so see them for me oh my god girls like you always get to see ireland yeah and i was like oh girl yeah oh my god all the feels don't do that it's only the first act it's only act one and we already have all the feels there are so many there are so many similarities i think that are introduced between Ellen and paulette the blonde hair the fact that they're not taken seriously yeah there's a lot of parallels but i think one of the things that i appreciate the most is that while they're both so similar in those aspects l kind of embraces the fact that people aren't going to take her seriously but tries to look like she can be regardless so she's always put together 
she always kind of presents herself as someone who's who's seriously trying to be taken seriously. When you look at Paulette, she's she's so obviously the kind of person who has gotten already so knocked down for, by life and so used to not being taken seriously that she's she's not presented as all that put together. She's not presented as all all that attractive or confident in herself so they have kind of very opposite energies in that way but also very similar yeah I feel like also Paulette and Elle do come from very different worlds for one thing money yeah no so that's the second part of my point is the more important part Paulette Paulette's Elle minus the privilege it's a very I think poignant piece yeah it's a a very interesting parallel and then the party happens. I really liked how they did this in the show better than in the movie. For one thing, I mean, again, it's very much the same that Vivian invites her to a party but tells her it's a costume party when it's not. So Elle comes in in a Playboy bunny outfit to be super embarrassed. Mm-hmm. But I feel like in the musical, Elle kind of owns it a little bit more. As opposed to in the film where she's pretending like it's totally normal that she's in a bunny outfit. In the musical, she kind of makes it more, that she makes it more intelligent. She's like, I know I appeared as a bunny, but I feel like that's not that much of a problem. Also, the, the Gloria Steinem comment, where, where she's like, not only am I here and you're trying to call me a skank, you are calling me a skank? Well, you know what? You think I'm dressed up as a Playboy bunny? I'm dressed up as Gloria Steinem. Are you calling Gloria Steinem a skank? And then Ida jumps in and be like, who's calling Gloria Steinem a skank? But it also kind of shows, I think, Elle's intelligence. I think a lot of times her intelligence is very underrated. She knows about Gloria Steinem. She not only knows that, she implies that she's read the memoir, that she's fully aware of all of the context that goes along with it. And she's like, yeah, she's she's down. She knows what she's talking about. Yeah. Also in this scene, let's talk about, like, Warner hitting on her. It bothers me that Warner is still flirting with her. But also that he's dating Vivian. He is dating Vivian. He's dating Vivian. And then the first thing that he does when he sees Elle looking hot is starts flirting with her. But I feel like he does that because he's dumb. Oh, he is. He sees a hot girl walk in the room and his brain goes straight to his penis. It goes both ways in they kind of dumb each other down when they are together. Yeah. Mm, I think what's very interesting about the scene and how it's staged is that when it's in the movie, they, they do much more of a party atmosphere. Like a house party. It's like a house party. It's like a college house party. In the show, they make it much more of like a party that very serious lawyer people would go to. It's a study party. It's a study party! Because I feel like actual Harvard students are probably not into like going to house parties and doing that sort of stuff. They're a little more dare I say serious. So it's also interesting though that it's presented as a method for them to cool down but then the first thing that Vivian does after the host walks away is say that person has a summer house right next to Justice Souter and we need to get into their study group and she's like she's constantly thinking of having to get ahead yeah. and War- and Warner is kind of standing there next to her like I thought we were going to a party. It's It's if you look at his body language if you look at the way he's presenting himself the beer that he's holding in one hand and he's just like staring down at it like oh i can't believe i'm here i thought i was gonna be at a party this is not what i consider a party (laughs) i thought this was a party this isn't a party this is a boring well also because he's used to like when he was in ucla with l the kind of parties they have 
Exactly. Like, I think that's what it is. I think it's he's he came here thinking it was going to be a party, like a college party. And it was not a college party. It was a a law school party. Oh, no. But then the fact that the party is so much more of a serious atmosphere also kind of makes Elle showing up as a Playboy bunny that much more important. Because in the movie, when she shows up, she immediately like makes a splash because it's like oh it's a house party yeah but she her showing up as a playboy bunny kind of makes a little bit of sense is that more not that it makes sense but it makes more sense than at like a serious networking event mm-hmm. so l walks in in a playboy bunny suit at a mingling party and everyone immediately is like what this is highly inappropriate i can't believe you did this yeah let me get into the other song that i really really enjoy which is a uh, chip on my shoulder I love it. The, the intro being the motif is a very universal thing, but I think it did it very well here by uh, subverting the idea that it was going to be all about love. And it's talking about how miserable she is because of said love and how she wants to die. And I think that's a very interesting way to use a motif in a way that you don't see in a lot of musicals. That leads very well into my point, actually, because something that I really love is that in this show, her supporting characters, the other characters who are affected by her, get their own I Want song. Yeah. Paulette has her I Want song in Ireland. That ends up coming to fruition in the end. Emmett gets an I Want song that ends up sort of coming to fruition when he starts being taken more seriously as a lawyer. I really enjoy that everyone kind of has their I Want song, but also that Elle's I Want song is what you want. <gasps> I love that, actually. That's so interesting. That the I want is what you want. I know. Oh my god, that's so interesting. And then her fruition of that is discarding the notion. Whereas Emmett and Paulette achieve their desires, Elle learns to do away with that mentality. Very quickly, one of the greatest moments in this whole song is Emmett drinking Red Bull for the first time. He goes, I don't know, how, how, many, how many are there? Two, three, I don't know, but I'm loving it! It was a really <laughs> funny moment. It's so great. It's so good. It's my favorite. So this song also brings back my point of, in the show and in the movie, her idea of drive, because the whole song is about how Emmett has a chip on his shoulder, and maybe you should also get some drive in yourself, because I have in mine... Yeah, why why are you not driven as hell? Just like how in Ireland we like suddenly get a taste of Paulette's backstory with Chip on My Shoulder, you suddenly get this whole backstory of where Emmett comes from and where his drive comes from. I think that is a running theme within this show, and I'm like slowly realizing it is the idea of find something that to drive yourself and do it. I think it also speaks to Ricky's point about development though. Because she starts off with her decisions. She has her own agency and she makes her own decisions. They tend to get prompted by what other people do, especially the men in her life. So Warner makes the decision to dump her. So she decides to become more serious. Emmett kicks her butt into high gear. So she actually decides to become more serious. The next thing that we have is so much better, where we find out that she's been chosen for the internship. And before we get to that, before she gets the internship, Warren proposes to Vivian. Yeah. He proposes, and Elle goes very down in the dumps, and she has this whole, like, poignant, slow moment, like... Well, because I feel like her seeing Warner propose to Vivian 
this whole time when Warner was dating Vivian, she still had in her mind that she still has a chance to win him back. But when she sees Warner propose, it's kind of locking it in that he's not attainable. You cannot win him back. In the movie, they're also already engaged when they meet. And I don't like that. It makes a lot more sense to have Warner propose at this moment, which is why I think in the musical, it made sense for them to change it to make that happen now. Agreed. I like that a lot more. Yeah. So much better though. It's, it's such an interesting song. It's so fun and upbeat. Also, Ellen Emmett having a handshake is adorable. Which also shows like about how much time they're like hanging out together and how their friendship is developing so much that, oh yeah, of course they have a handshake. Yeah, it's so cute. This song is really kind of her sticking it to Warner. A little bit, yeah. And so when she comes to talk to him, she starts referencing sex a lot and she plays it up. Just a little bit. She she takes an orgasm on stage. It's so interesting because it really plays up that she's aware of how people see her. She is aware that people like think that she's nothing but sex and that she's whatever. So she plays it up and then five seconds later, she's like, no, forget it. It's better. I feel like what that is showing, not of her orgasming, but the lack of orgasming. (gasps) Saying that, oh, he's terrible in bed. Oh, that's such a good... Oh, wow. Yeah, no, that's what it is. We spent all of spring break that night in the hot tub. I remember that sexy time. And I didn't have an actual orgasm once. (laughs) Which also she's saying in front of this group of people. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Uh Mm -hmm. The song is also just a bop in general. It's it's such a bop. It's, It's real good. It's real good. Also the ending when she holds that note for how many bars? So many. For forever. But also what I find really, really, really nice is when she's wondering who she can call and she's like, oh my God, I have to tell my mom. My mom will fall on the floor. Yeah. She calls her mom because her mom will be very surprised because again, this is something very different from anything Elle has ever done. So like, hey, you know that thing I randomly decided to do that was totally different from my character that was also very difficult to do? I'm succeeding at it. Not only am I succeeding at it, look how good I'm succeeding at this. I'm I'm to the top four of my class. I love that moment. I love that whole like, mom, look, I'm doing. And then she also says your daughter's doing something right. And it's, yeah. <laughs> oh, honey. It's also a moment of validation. She's not working for Warner anymore. And now she's succeeding. And it's like, oh, so this was the right thing to do. Okay, good. That was the first act. Hi friends, it's Ricky here. This week we got really deep into our deep dive, so we've decided to split it up into a two-parter. But don't worry, it's just a quick intermission. You can tune in next week where we will discuss Act 2 of Legally Blonde, the musical. Thanks again for listening. This has been the Theater Queens Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, Spotify, SoundCloud, CastBox, and RSS at Theater Queens Podcast and at Theater underscore Queens on Twitter.